Amen. So take a Bible and find Colossians. We're in book 51 of 66. We're still on track to finish up with the book of Revelation the last week in May, last Wednesday night in May. And uh, we're going to combine a couple of books along the way, some of these shorter letters in the New Testament, but 51 of 66 tonight. Book of Colossians. On the surface, when I tell you a few things about the city of Colossae, um, it probably will feel like or seem like you living in Odessa, Texas in 2016, there's not a lot that we have in common with these people. Um, But I'm going to tell you about the city a little bit, just so you know something about the people that Paul's writing to. And then I'm going to tell you a few things about the the religious climate in and around Colossae. And even though there's a lot of differences with the place and the time we live today, when you, when you understand the religious climate in their city and in their area, I think you see a lot of similarities. And then because you see those similarities, the book becomes pretty easy to apply to our lives. So just a few things about the city of Colossae. These are on your outline. And I didn't give you anything to fill in here, but it's a small agrarian community about 120 miles east of Ephesus. And so you can see on this map, way over there on the right down in the bottom, that green over on the bottom right corner, that's uh, the Roman province of Judea. And so Jerusalem is right down there way on the bottom right corner. The water here is the Mediterranean Sea, and the yellow crazy looking thing over there is Greece. And then the brown thing is what we call Turkey, but in, in uh, Paul's day, it was Asia. And you can see in that red box that there's a couple of cities, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and then down at the bottom is Colossae. It was in the Lycus River Valley. It sat right on a river, and uh, it was right near the base of Mount Cadmus. And so there's Mount Cadmus, pretty stunning view. And the city of Colossae just sat down at the bottom of that mountain right there. And so um, when you look in history, a lot of the things that Corey told you about uh, Philippi or I've told you about Ephesus or the churches in Galatia, we know those things because ancient writers tell us those things and you can study them outside of the Bible and, and learn about those cities. There's not a whole lot outside of the Bible about Colossae. There's a few things. Um, Sometimes it's spelled with a K. Some Bible translations actually spell it with a K. Um, But we don't know a whole lot. And scholars say because we don't know a whole lot, it probably wasn't really big. Because a lot of the big cities in the ancient world, we have a lot of things written about them, records and things like that. Not a whole lot from Colossae. um, So it probably was not a large city. The textile industry was the big economic driver in Colossae. They were known for producing a special kind of wool. They bred a special kind of sheep and they had a certain way of producing this wool and everybody thought it was the greatest. And it was uh, sort of had its own brand. It was called Colossinus wool and people loved it and they sold it all over the all over the Roman Empire they were on a major trade route and so that helped them get their product out one interesting thing about the city you can't see um, where the city's at in that picture that was just the best picture of Mount Cadmus I could find the city's never been excavated they know where it's at and they you can go there and you can see some of the features of the city but a lot of these ancient cities 
Um, like I've showed you pictures of Ephesus, and I showed you the street and the library and the town square and all that. Well, at different points in history, that just got covered up with ground. And cities got conquered, and they leveled them and flattened them, and you know, it just sort of gets covered up over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So Colossae is covered up. We know exactly where it's at, but it's never been excavated. And archaeologists have asked the, the government of Turkey for permission to excavate that city. And they've given archaeologists permission to excavate other cities. They've just never given them permission to excavate Colossae. And so we know where it's at. And you can go there and you can see some features of the city. Um, they say that you can see an, a, an acropolis. You can see a theater. You can see the graveyard. And you can see a handful of buildings. They haven't found a Jewish synagogue uh, scholars do think there was a big Jewish population there, but they haven't found that yet because they haven't been able to sort of dig around for that kind of stuff. So kind of interesting that it's never been excavated. Um, back to that map, it was connected with these three cities, Hierapolis, Laodicea right in the middle, and Colossae down south. And actually the elevation in Colossae is a little bit higher um, than the other two right there by the mountain. And these three cities were kind of like sister cities. They were kind of, they all went together. People thought of them together and there was road connecting them. And one interesting thing about them, we talked about this a few months back when we were going through the letters in the book of Revelation, is that in Laodicea, they did not have a water supply in Laodicea, which is very, very rare for ancient cities. Almost no ancient cities that don't have their own water supply because it's just logistically much harder for them to get water. What they did in Laodicea is they built high-pressured stone pipes, and they piped water from one of two places. They piped it from the north, from Hierapolis, or they piped it from the south in Colossae. And the funny thing is, Colossae, I showed you that picture of the mountain, right? So you saw the snow cap on top of that mountain. It snows and the water comes down. You ever been to the mountains and drank out of a mountain spring, and it's just freezing cold water? So in Colossae, they're known for having icy cold water coming right down off the mountain. When you go north to Hierapolis, you can Google this. I should, have, I should have got you a picture. They have medicinal hot springs, and it's sort of this rock formation in the side of the hill, and these people go bathe in the... I mean, they've been doing this for thousands of years. They go bathe in these hot springs, and it's just naturally hot. And Laodicea, right in the middle, has no water. But they take that hot water from Hierapolis, and they pipe it down south. And they take that cold water from Colossae and they pipe it up north. Either way, by the time the water gets to Laodicea, what's it like? Lukewarm water. And what does Jesus say to those people? He says, you're, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. And sometimes we read that as Americans who don't know anything about these cities and we think, is Jesus saying, he says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Is he saying he'd rather me be like a Satan worshiper than a mediocre Christian? Is that his point? No, that's not his point at all. He's talking to people who couldn't get hot water or cold water. They just had to settle for lukewarm water. And they realized this lukewarm water is not good for a whole lot. I mean, it'll keep you alive, but it's not refreshing like the cold water in Colossae. And it's not doesn't have any medicinal value like the hot water in Hierapolis. It's just kind of eh. And Jesus is saying, I wish you were useful for something. You're not. You just like lukewarm water. And when they heard that, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. So just a little interesting fact there, connected with those other two cities. Um, it was destroyed in about 60 A.D. by an earthquake. There was a big earthquake, um, got Laodicea, and got 
Colossae. And one of the interesting things about that is, uh, you know how in the United States when we have a disaster, at least these days, FEMA rolls in and you're so relieved because FEMA showed up, right? But roll your eyes, right? That's like a, I don't know what emoji you would use on Facebook for that comment, but it'd be like eye roll or something like that. But FEMA comes and they help you and they give you money and they give you a place to stay. The Roman government did the exact same thing. When there was a volcano or an earthquake or a flood or whatever, they would send aid. They would send relief. Those people paid taxes and then when they needed help, Rome would help them. When the earthquake flattened these two cities, they turned the aid down and said, we'll rebuild ourselves." So these are prosperous cities. These are people who were very successful in life. And when their city got flattened by an earthquake, they just said, we don't need to help. Take the FEMA trailers, turn them back around, we'll rebuild it ourselves. So destroyed in 60 AD. And depending on the Bible scholar you read, some, uh, I would say most, think that Paul wrote this letter before that earthquake. And then a few scholars think that he wrote it after, but it was pretty close either way. So... um, Let's talk about the religion in the city. And I'm just going to give you four words here that describe the religious climate in this community. First word is animism. Second is pluralism. Third is syncretism. And the fourth is asceticism. We'll talk about each of these. Virtually all the people in this area called Asia would be animistic peoples. And animism is kind of a, a big concept and a fuzzy concept. It's hard to define it exactly. But just generally speaking, these are people who believed in spirits, for lack of a better word, okay? Uh, unseen, invisible, spiritual beings that were very much real. Invisible does not mean they're not real. Very much real, but you couldn't see them. And these spirits inhabited the physical world. They inhabited mountains, they inhabited trees, they inhabited forests and hot springs and the sun, all sorts of stuff. And they sort of had control over the physical creation. And they also believed that through their religious activity, they could influence these spiritual invisible beings. Maybe you could say they even thought they could control them by offering certain sacrifices or doing certain things or performing certain rituals that they could then gain power over these spiritual forces. This is exactly, for example, what we see when we go to Kenya. And there's all sorts of people there, and a lot of people there claim to be Christian, a lot of people there claim to be Muslim, but the reality is that most of the folks there are just animists. And when the rubber hits the road, what they really believe is that they're surrounded by spiritual beings that have influence over their life and that by doing certain things, charms, amulets, sacrifices, etc., etc., that they can control those beings or win their favor or earn their favor or even manipulate them so that life goes better for themselves. And you see it in Africa, you see, I've seen it in South America, you see it in Central America, you see it In the United States of America, you see it all over the world, this idea of animism. And so these people were very much animistic people. Also, they were pluralistic people. If you wanted a modern-day definition of pluralism, you would basically say this is the idea that all roads lead to heaven, right? Just all religions are equally good. You can be a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever you want to be, an animist, and as long as you're a good one, you have the opportunity or the chance of getting to, quote-unquote, eternal life, however you define that. And in Colossae, 
they were definitely pluralistic. And so I told you they couldn't excavate the city, right? They haven't been able to dig it up, archaeologists. But they can sort of walk around and see what's on the surface, dig a little bit. And they found tons and tons of coins. It's not unusual. All these coins around the city. And here are, this is not a comprehensive list. I just stopped because I got tired of typing these up. And I didn't want to find any more pictures. Here are a few of the gods that they have found on coins around Colossae. And so I'm going to start on the top left and go across and then go down and tell you about these gods. So top left is Artemis of the Ephesians. Remember, Ephesus is 120 miles away, so that statue may look familiar if you were here a few weeks ago. Artemis was a goddess of fertility. Zeus, uh, I told you that Laodicea was connected with Colossae. If you go way back in history, Laodicea was not always called Laodicea. It was originally called the city of Zeus. So just right up the road, Laodicea, the city of Zeus. Uh, Men, M-E-N, God of the moon. Read about him today, and he's one of the few deities in any ancient pantheon where a male god is associated with the moon. Almost always it's female goddesses associated with the moon, but men was one of them. And then right next to men is his sister Selene, who was also a goddess of the moon. So I guess they shared that. Um, Isis was an Egyptian goddess. They found Egyptian coins in Colossae. Um, with the god, goddess Isis on there, goddess of nature and magic. Serapis is the next one, and uh, this one is interesting. I think Serapis, that's top right. Is that the one I'm on, guy with the thing on his head? Serapis is interesting because when a bunch of Greek rulers took control over Egypt, they realized they had a problem, and they realized these Egyptian people worship these gods and we worship these gods and that's going to be a, it's going to be hard for us to get together on anything because we don't see eye to eye on that. So they made up a new god and this is one of the gods they made, Serapis. And on his face and his hair, they made him look Greek. So when you see his face, you're like, well, that looks kind of like a Greek thing. You know, he's got the big flowing beard and whatever. But apparently these statues of him, he's clothed in Egyptian clothing and it was like a compromise Like, hey, you have yours and we have ours, but let's make a new one that we can share and we can agree on this. And so they invented this guy, and uh, I don't remember what he was the god of, but it doesn't really matter since they made him up out of nowhere. Um, Athena, goddess of wisdom. Demeter, god of the harvest. Hygieia, goddess of hygiene, cleanliness, health. Interesting. Helios. God uh, that was a God of the sun, actually the personification of the sun. Um, Tyche, the goddess of cities. She protected cities. So she would be a goddess that every city would want her to protect them, that she would have been uh, in a lot of different places. Cybele, the great mother. Hecate, the goddess of magic. On and on and on and on, you get the idea. Okay, All these gods all over this area. And nobody in this, in this region at this time thought, no one, it's hard for us to get this, no one thought, we all know Zeus is the only real God. No one thought that. Nobody said, well, all those idiots that worship Athena, I only worship Hecate. I mean, how stupid do you have to be to worship that? They just worshiped all of them. It was just not a thing. It was just very pluralistic. Even to the point where if you want to make up a brand new one, fantastic, we'll add him in. He's as good as any of the others. 
So very, very pluralistic. Anything goes. And because they were very pluralistic, go back to the, the four words there, they were also very syncretic, or you can say syncretistic, either way. Syncretic or syncretistic. Syncretism was common, and what that means is you take different religions and you mix them. And you get something totally different in the end. And if you want to see that, where I've seen that most clearly is in South America. Uh, when you go to visit a Roman Catholic cathedral, if you'll get somebody to give you a tour and explain lots of the parts in it. The last time we went, I went to one was in, um, in Cordoba, Argentina, and they took us in. And they said, look, the Spaniards came here and they made everybody become Catholic. They just said, you know, gun to your head. You're a Catholic now. Okay, I'm a Catholic. Great. And then they said, build this, uh, build this uh, cathedral. Build this church for us. So these guys are building this church. And they sort of give them some direction, but they also give them some leeway. And so they're pointing out all over the cathedral. And the, the thing that stood out to me the most is that we walk to the very middle and they say, look straight up. So we walk to the very middle, up there at the front, in front of the altar, and you look straight up, and I mean, it's way up there, right? Big steeple thing goes way up there. And the guy says, what do you see right at the very, very, very top? Forget all the pictures on the sides. What's on the very top? Say, well, it looks like a sun. It is a sun. Guess what these people used to worship before they were Catholic? The sun. And they built that church, and they said, we'll show you. We'll put your statue of Jesus right here, and we'll put this statue here, and we'll paint this guy on the wall here. But at the very top goes our guy. And they took two things, and they just mixed them together. That's syncretism. And that was very, very common in Colossae. People had this idea, okay? you got to understand this, seriously. You can just mix faiths, just blend them together. This is like cafeteria-style, furs-style theology, right? When you go through furs, you go through and you say, um, if you're like me, you, you go through the whole line and you say, I don't want any of this. But some of my friends who work here at the church, like Corey, go through and they say, uh, what do you get from the meat? What are you going to pick? Well, pick something. Salisbury steak. He says, mmm, that Salisbury steak looks delicious. The baked fish looks kind of funny today. So I'm going to pass on the fish and I'm going to take some Salisbury. You get down to there to the potatoes. You're going with French fries or mashed? Mashed. Pass on the French fries. I don't want any of that, but I'll take some of this. Then you get down to the, what would you say? Brown gravy. Brown gravy on the mashed. Then you get down to the vegetables. What are you taking? In, green beans. Asparagus, you always get asparagus when we go eat. Not dieting. You just got brown gravy. The diet's off. Fried okra and mac and cheese. <coughs> I'm going to pass on the salad. I'm going to go with the fried okra and the mac and cheese. And you go through and you take a little bit of this and you don't take whatever you want. That's syncretism. I'm going to take a little bit of this one, but not all of it. And I'm going to take a little bit of this one, but I don't want any of that. And I'm going to take a little bit of this, and I'm going to make my own thing, and it's just going to be this mix of whatever. Lastly, they were very ascetic. Asceticism was common. And so you can read about people in this area. It was, it was not unusual for them to mutilate themselves in an attempt to control the spirits around them. Um, it would not be unusual if, for example... They went to the witch doctor or the shaman because their kid was sick, and he said, well, you need to cut your finger and squeeze the blood out. Crazy things. I mean, they would physically hurt themselves thinking that that would control 
these little d deities, little g gods. Um, Self-denial, things like uh, fasting from certain foods, refraining from certain activities, all in an attempt to not to honor the gods, but to control them, to manipulate them, these gods and these spirits all around them. So that's the religious climate. I would back up from that, and I say, okay, how does that compare to the United States? On the one hand, you look at that first one and you say, we're not as animistic as a lot of people around the world. Okay? People in the United States, people in Western Europe, tend to believe that there is a God up there, but this is the physical world, and spiritual beings don't have a whole lot of impact. That's how we live day to day. And you know that's true. You can say, oh, no, no, I believe in spiritual beings. And I say, great, but if your kid gets sick, are you going to call me to pray for him first, or are you going to call the doctor first? 99 times out of 100, you're going to call the doctor first. And then you may ask me or somebody else to pray for him, but the fix for you is a physical fix. They need a pill. And so we tend to not think in terms of these spiritual beings. At the same time, just look at the movies we like. Look at the movies in the United States that make a lot of money and tell me we don't want to believe in spiritual unseen forces. I mean, you just go down the list, and I'm not picking on movies or telling you not to go to movies. I'm just saying we can deny it all day long in our everyday life, but when we pay our own money to be entertained, we have this built-in desire to want to believe in these unseen spiritual forces that have impact in day-to-day life in different ways. And so I think that's, I think that's true of us. Pluralism is definitely true in the United States of America, as well as syncretism. I mean, You go to the average church and you just poll the people sitting in a pew about what their beliefs are and what doctrines they accept and reject. And then you compare that to quote-unquote orthodox Christianity, the faith once for all delivered to the saints passed down through the centuries. And you'll say, they're in a Christian church, but they're not Christian. They don't even believe basic Christian doctrine. And there's just this weird mix. And there's certainly the idea that if you believe that, that's good for you. I believe this, it's good for me. That's pluralism, that's syncretism. Asceticism, um, probably not a whole lot of that in the sense that we're trying to control spiritual forces by hurting ourselves. But probably a lot of the idea that you can do things that will have spiritual benefit for you in the afterlife. You can be a good person. You can do this, do this, not do this, not do this, and there's going to be a payoff for you down the road. You can work your way in. You can earn your way in. You can be a good person. If you die and you're a good person, you go to heaven. That's the idea. Well, you did something or you didn't do other things, and that somehow gives a spiritual benefit to you. So very similar in that regards. So I think the letter and the things excuse me, that Paul is saying to this church uh, are important for us to hear. A couple things just about the church in the book, and then we'll get into uh, doctrines. The church in Colossae was started by a guy named Epaphras, and that happened while Paul was in Ephesus. So fill that in and then look at a few verses with me. Go back and look at Acts 19.10. Verse 
Verse 1 in Acts 19 says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. And it says down there in verse 8 that he went to the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Some of those people in the synagogue became stubborn and they continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So what did Paul do? He withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So you've got to listen to what Luke's telling you. He's saying, Paul goes to Ephesus. He spends three months preaching in the Jewish synagogue until they get fed up and they run him off. So when they run him off, he takes all the believers, all the Jewish believers with him, and they go to the hall of Tyrannus, which was like just a a building there in town. And they go to this hall, and that's where he starts preaching. And he does that for two years. So he's there for over two years, the longest city he ever stopped at in all of his missionary journeys. Corinth was about 18 months. Ephesus was over two years. But Luke says he's preaching in Ephesus at the hall of Tyrannus, and what's the result? Everybody in Asia hears the word of God. So, Lucas, go back to the map real quick, will you? So there's the map, right? You see the circle, Colossae right there. Straight to the left, part of the word is cut off on the left side of that circle. You see Ephesus. That's where he's at, on the far west side of, quote-unquote, Asia. And he stays there for over two years preaching boldly, and the result is all of that area in brown, all those people, Hear the word of God. Now, does that mean every single person? No. It's Luke's way of saying, look, Paul camped out right here, and his ministry had such an impact that the gospel spread all the way through this whole province. And here's one of the ways that that happened. Flip back to Colossians. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. You just need to know Paul did not start the church in Colossae. He was in Ephesus. But there was a guy named Epaphras... When you piece it all together, you realize Epaphras went to Ephesus. would not be uncommon for a businessman in Colossae to go to Ephesus. He heard Paul preach, and then he went back to his hometown. And look at Colossians 1.7. It says, you learned it. You learned what? The grace of God. You learned about the grace of God from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the idea is there's this guy, Epaphras, who lives in Colossae. He hears Paul preach in Ephesus. And then as he's going back and forth, he's preaching the gospel and starting the church in Colossae. And then he's going back to Ephesus for business or travel or whatever. And he's talking to Paul saying, hey, the church is going great. People are believing. People are being added. And he's giving Paul these reports. So Epaphras is the guy who started this church. As just one side note tell you one of the men in Colossae, one of the members of the church, was a guy named Philemon. You ever heard of Philemon? Nowhere in the Bible do you read specifically that he lived in Colossae, but look at this. Look at Colossians 4, 9. He's given some greetings at the end of this book, and Paul mentions a guy named Onesimus. And he says, Onesimus is our faithful and beloved brother, and he is one of you. He's from Colossae. Onesimus is from Colossae. You say, I thought we were talking about Philemon. Who's Onesimus? Onesimus was a slave that was owned by a guy named Philemon, and they lived in Colossae. 
And Onesimus ran away from Philemon, and potentially that's where he ran into Paul, was while Paul was in Ephesus. And so he's saying here that this guy, he's from your hometown, you know who he is, he's a believer, he's part of us, and so you can, you can connect Philemon to the city of Colossae in that way. Um, one thing we know about the church there, this is just a few details, is that they met in homes. Okay, you remember in, in Ephesus, he's preaching in the synagogue, then the hall of Tyrannus. But in Colossae, smaller community, they're meeting in homes. So look at Colossians 4, 16. He says, when this letter has been read to you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. Uh, I'm sorry, back up to verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So we know in Laodicea, the church is meeting in a home in that way. And then you read the same thing in Philemon. Flip over to Philemon, just a few pages to the right. And you know Philemon lived in uh, Colossae. And he says, Philemon, verse 2, he talks about Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow, fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Philemon had a group of people, a church that met in his home. So that's what they're doing for church. They're meeting in homes. And I jumped ahead of myself and I read Colossians 4.16. It is interesting to note that Paul wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea. We don't have it. We have no idea what he wrote in that letter. But we do know that he told the church in Colossae, just right down the road, hey, you should read that letter I sent to them and you should give them the one that I sent to you. You guys should read them and then switch. So just an interesting fact there. Here's an outline of the book. It's pretty, pretty simple to lay out. Short introduction, a section that talks about the supremacy of Christ, some of the most amazing things about Jesus written in the New Testament, written in that section. A description of Paul's ministry. That sounds like a boring section, but it's really interesting. Then he talks about the danger of heresy. That's sort of the reason that he wrote this letter in the first place. Then he explains what the Christian life ought to look like, and then he wraps it up there at the end. So we could spend a lot of time trying to break those sections down even further, but instead, this is not a really a long book. I'll just give you a few big ideas and we'll read some chunks out of Colossians and we'll wrap it up. First of all, I want you to see theology in Colossians, okay? Theology in Colossians. And there's two basic ideas I want you to see. The first one is this. Colossians is God-centered as opposed to being man-centered. Okay, you live in a, a time and a place where people are very me-centered, self-centered. And you can see that when you go to a bookstore and you see the self section. It's large and many volumes there because we're very concerned about the self. And Colossians gives you a contrast. It's a very God-centered book. Also, you could contrast this with, in Colossae, they were tempted to be God's-centered. Little g, God's centered or spirits centered or whatever um, Paul's wanting these people to be God centered and you see that in a couple of prayers right here in the beginning so look at Colossians 1 after he gives a few hello this is who I am I'm writing to you 
This is how he begins the book in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Right out of the gate, he's praying, and he's praying specifically to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. How did Paul hear about that? As far as we know, he never went there. Well, Epaphras, right? He's going back and forth and he's telling them. (coughs) Because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and growing. In the whole world. That makes you think of Luke 19, right? The word of God spreads all the way through Asia while Paul's preaching there in Ephesus. It's spreading all over the world. It's bearing fruit and it's growing. As it does so among you, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth, you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He's made known to us your love in the Spirit. So he starts off praying, thanking God for them. And then look at verse 9. Here's a second prayer. From the day that we heard about how great you are doing, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's the inspiration verse for the hymn we sang just a minute ago. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Sometimes people talk to me and they say, I don't know what to pray for people. I don't know how to pray for people. That's how you do it. You don't say weird, vague, meaningless things like, God, please bless them. God, please, please make them happy. You say, just if you don't know what to say, you just read this. And you say, I am praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. I'm praying that you would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. I'm praying that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I'm praying that you would be fully pleasing to God. I'm praying that you would bear fruit in every good work. And I'm praying that you would increase in the knowledge of God. That's what you pray for people. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance in patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's why I think those prayers are interesting. He starts off saying, Epaphras has told us how great things are going. But what's his response to that? Not to pat them on the back, but to say, I thank God for how great things are going in your church. It has nothing to do with you. I'm thanking God for that. He's focused on God. And then he comes back around and he says, we do want you to know we have not stopped praying for you. And we're not necessarily praying for all the sick folks. We're not necessarily praying for all the problems and all those things. We care about those things. Here's what we're really praying, that you would have spiritual wisdom, that you would walk in a manner worthy of your relationship with God, and that you would know God fully in in a big, big, powerful way. We want you to know him. So he's very God-centered right out of the gate. And then he moves in a second direction that's very important. Colossians is not only God-centered, but it's also Christ-centered. And that's a really important point for us today. Because we live in a country where most people, most, not all, most people are pretty comfortable talking about God in general. Just, he's up there. But when you start talking about Jesus... 
That's where people get uncomfortable. That's where you start drawing lines in the sand. And you can't have one truly without the other. And so he moves from being God-centered to being very Christ-centered. And look what he says beginning in verse 15. He's talking about the beloved son from verse 13. The one in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That son, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Think about that if you're these people who live in Colossae and you believe in invisible spirits, right? All these guys you can't see. But they all have their statues everywhere so you can get a glimpse of them. And Paul says, look, it's different with this faith. It's not like these other guys. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. That's what he looks like. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. We hear the word firstborn and we think, oh, so he was the first thing that God made. That's not what that means at all. It means he's the supreme one over everything that has been made. He's the preeminent one. He's the most important. In verse 16 explains it. By him, by Jesus, all things were created. Sometimes we teach our kids a little question. Who made you? God made me. Is that true? Yeah. It's also true to say, who made you? Jesus made me. That's what it says right there. He made everything. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All those words, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. In Paul's day, they were words used to describe spiritual beings, spiritual forces, what we would call demonic spirits. And Paul says, look, all these spirits that you're so concerned about, Jesus made them. He created them. Why are you messing around with them when you can know the one who made them? That's silly. Verse 17, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. That's an amazing verse. In Jesus, because of Jesus, all things, that means all things, all things hold together and don't come flying apart, crashing apart, exploding, sucking in, whatever, because of Jesus. They all hold together in him. Verse 18, he's the head of the church, head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent. You can draw a circle around that word preeminent and draw a line down to firstborn in verse 15. Those two words mean the same thing. Verse 19, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, you're talking to people who have grown up thinking, this little God, this little God, this little God, this little God, this little God. Paul says, no, 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 no. There is only one God. And in Jesus, the fullness of God was in him. He really was God in human flesh. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So some amazing things he says about Christ. And again, you understand in the context, he's saying to these people, I want you to be God-focused. The one true God. I want you to be focused on him. Not yourselves, not these spirits. Focused on God. I also want you to be focused on Christ. It's not enough to just have a vague idea of God. It's got to be centered and focused on Christ. And that's certainly applicable to our day and age. So here's how you apply this theological foundation that Paul lays out, or this is how Paul applies it, okay? Theology applied in Colossians. Three thoughts. 
Number one, good theology results in a consuming passion for missions. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in this room should be like the Apostle Paul and travel around and start churches, but that most certainly means that when you really get the theological foundation in Colossians, if you're not then moved to be serious about participating in missions somehow, certainly praying, but at least giving and or going. Both of those things are needed for missions, right? Giving and going. One's not more important than the other. We've got to have both. If you're not serious about it, you really didn't get the theology that he started with. You may be able to answer the questions correctly, but it didn't get down in your bones all the way. If you really get it, it moves you to be committed to missions. And so look what he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Does that strike you as an odd phrase? That he says there is something lacking in Christ's afflictions? If you said that in church today, like if I said that in the interview with the search team here when I was coming to be the pastor, they'd say, you're a heretic, go away. There's nothing lacking in what Christ did on the cross. But Paul says there is something lacking. It's not power. It's not its ability to save. It's that people don't know about it. They haven't heard. Right? That's Romans 10. How are they going to believe if they don't hear? How are they going to hear unless somebody preaches? How are they going to preach unless you send them? they got to go. Because we believe these things about God, because we believe these things about Jesus... We are willing to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, meaning to take the gospel to those who have never heard it. So he rejoices that through his sufferings he can do that. He talks about, uh, jump down, uh, let's see what verse do I want to look at. Verse 27. To, To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28... Him, that's Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You ought to underline that verse, 28, where he says, we may present everyone mature in Christ. And you ought to get it through your head that when we do missions at our homes, in the city of Odessa, in the United States, or in Kenya, that's the goal, to present people mature in Christ. We're not in the business of quote-unquote saving souls and getting people to repeat a goofy prayer and shaking their hand and saying, congratulations, you're going to heaven someday, we'll see you later. That was not Paul's ministry. Paul says, my aim and what your aim ought to be is to present people mature in their faith. That's how he defined his mission. And this is not easy. He says in verse 29, I've got to toil, I've got to struggle, good news, I'm toiling and struggling with God's energy that he works within me. Flip over to chapter 4. Look what he says about about missions in chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Number one, pray for us that God gives us opportunity to share the word. Number two, pray for us that when God opens that door, we would be clear. 
not funny, not brilliant, not entertaining. If you teach a Sunday school class, children or grown-ups or anywhere in between, your goal is not to be funny. Your goal is not to be entertaining. Your goal is not for them to think how smart you are. Your goal is to be clear. I want to be clear about this gospel. So he says, pray that we have this open door and pray that we can make it clear. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Make the best use of the time you have. How do you do that? Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Watch your mouth. Make the best use of the time, because God's going to open a door for you, and when he opens it, you need to walk through it and be ready to share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. So good theology results in a passion for missions. Second, trusting anyone or anything but Jesus is pure folly. You can look in chapter 2, starting in verse 8. For the sake of time, we're not going to read it. Because we're almost running out of time here. But you can go back and read Colossians 2, 8 to 23. We'll just hit some of the highlights here, moving real quick. Verse 8. Don't let people take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit or human tradition or the elemental spirits of the world. Don't go back to those stupid gods and goddesses you used to chase after. Don't go back to that stuff. Jump down and look at verse 15. It says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's talking about verse 14, the cross. At the cross, Jesus disarmed all his spiritual enemies. And then verse 16, down to 19, he says, look, remember all that asceticism stuff, controlling your body and hurting your body. Quit worrying about food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. Quit worrying about asceticism, verse 18. Stop worshiping angels. Quit worrying about visions and spiritual experiences. Verse 19, hold fast to the head. Who's the head? You flip back over to chapter 1. Verse 18, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. Hold fast to him, not all this other stuff. Verse 20, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. When you came to faith in Jesus, all that other stuff, you were dead to that stuff. Quit submitting to all these regulations. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Verse 23 is the kicker. All of these things, these old gods you used to worship, all these rules, all this stuff, It has the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They have the appearance of wisdom. That talk show host may make it sound really good. It has no value for you. It is foolish for you to chase after that stuff when you can hold fast to the head of the body that is Jesus Christ. Last idea is this. And this is sort of a summary of a big section. Salvation results in sanctification, forgiveness, thankfulness, and worship. And I just picked four words out. You could, you could put a lot more in there. But this is, this is uh, if you're looking at the outline... This is the section where he's talking about the Christian life. 
If you really know Jesus Christ, this is what your life ought to look like. And it starts in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, if, chapter 3, verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And he talks about sanctification and what sanctification looks like in your life. Verse 5, you're putting to death the earthly things in you. You've got to fight them. That's not something you just lay back and wait for God to take care of. You've got to kill it. The sin in your life, the sin in your heart, the sin that comes out of your mouth. You've got to fight it and kill it. Put it to death. And then verse 12, you have to put on what sort of things? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing one an- with one another. If one has a complaint against, each, uh, against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Your salvation, God has forgiven you, ought to result in you being a forgiving person. If you absolutely refuse to forgive other people, It's a telltale sign that you have not truly experienced forgiveness from God in Christ. Regardless of what kind of Bible questions you can answer. really doesn't matter. You can impress me with all your Bible facts and Bible drill skills and all sorts of theological answers and ideas. If you just say, I will not forgive that person, it's a sign that you have not been forgiven yourself. Period. Salvation leads to forgiveness. Not just of you, but towards other people. He talks about thankfulness. Verse 15 And then verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So just a few ideas from this section about what the Christian life ought to look like. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to end with prayer, and we're just going to pray for our church. And uh, because of time, this will be the last thing that we do tonight. And here's what I would like you to do. Go to Colossians 1. And I want you to just look over verse 3 all the way to 14. And I want you to look at some of the things that Paul prayed for this church, about this church. And I want you to pray them for our church. The things that Paul asked God to do for them and in them, I want you to ask God to do for us and in us. And so I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to pray on your own, and then uh, I'll close us up and we'll be finished.